Council, I'll, I'll talk you through the agenda for a second, and then we'll we'll get rolling. Um, we've got a, uh, two or three pop-ups that I'm going to offer to you. You, you all can decide whether uh, you need to hear more or not. Uh, they would include um, a couple of precinct changes, and Stephanie Isles is, is here to, uh, to update you if you need it. I know there's been a lot of back and forth um, over the weekend. Uh, I think folks are comfortable, but uh, you'll vote on that next week. Um, Jim Reddick's here on the 2017 uh, hazard mitigation plan. Again, a regional plan. You got it over the weekend. I think it's... Um, fairly self-explanatory, but if folks uh, want a little more information, we're prepared to give you that. And then you've got a couple of bond ordinances, again, that I think are, are pretty straightforward on next next week, um, but they're but they're big dollars. And so um, I'm gonna, I am going to ask uh, Mike Goldsmith, Deputy City Manager, to just jump up and give you about three or four minutes on those. Uh, Franklin One is just a, a real inexpensive uh, financing for utilities that you all have used in the past. And, um, again, it's uh, pretty standard business, but they are big dollars, so at least let folks know what you're doing next week. After the pop-ups, uh, Susan Perry is going to uh, jump up and do a, a fairly detailed presentation uh, about um, the housing study. And you'll remember, so tonight, and I'll talk about this again before she gets up, but really tonight is the first of our themed work sessions that will follow the themes of your priorities of housing, education, and public safety. And so tonight, obviously, is about housing, uh, around housing. Uh, really, our, our, our two-pronged approach is strengthening neighborhoods and deconcentrating poverty. And tonight will be about strengthening neighborhoods. And again, this is a little bit of our, uh, it's our first time, but the idea was to give you a good read-ahead material uh, last week and, uh, and not spend a lot of time presenting to you tonight, but again, get into that idea of, of deliberate or uh, substantive deliberations and really some conversation. I think this is going to be some, some really interesting conversation. Um, and then we'll go into a, a you know a, a very specific uh, neighborhood and uh, talk about the revitalization of old Huntersville and uh, planning staff along with James Rogers, uh, Mel Price of WPA, and uh, B Garvin, the president of the old uh, Huntersville Civic League. We'll uh, do a little tag team presentation that I think will be a really interesting conversation for you as well. And then when that's done, we've got a couple of um, uh, legal matters that we need to hit in a, in a, in a pretty quick uh, closed session. So. That's our agenda. In terms of, I just would, I would put it out to you all. Um, uh, as I said, the registrars here can jump up and talk to you about your precinct changes for Bowling Park and Zion Grace, uh, if that's council's desire, or you can vote next week. Um, and um, off we go. We're looking for some guidance. Anybody need it? If you're good, I think we're, I think we're satisfied. Thank you for having us this evening. Um, I wanted to also introduce, we have um, two of our board members here, our chairman, Mike Ziggenfuss, and our vice chairman, Michael Candewall. So Mike and Mike um, are on the board, and they're here supporting us this evening. We wanted to talk to you about a couple of polling place recommendations. Um, these will be in effect, hopefully, for the June primary election on June 13th. The first is to relocate the polling place for Bowling Park um, to the, from the former Richard Bowling Elementary School, which is currently Norfolk CSEP Center, to the new Richard Bowling Elementary School, literally right down the street, and Zion Grace United Methodist Church to Second Presbyterian Church. We've been utilizing the Norfolk CSEP Center as a polling place while the construction of the new Richard Bowling Elementary School was being done. It has been completed. Um, we've talked with the principal team, uh, Norfolk Police, 
and all support staff, and they're in agreement for us to move into that location. Zion Grace United Methodist Church, unfortunately, is no longer able to serve as a polling place. We've looked at several locations within that precinct area and within one mile of the precinct area, and our recommendation is to move into Second Presbyterian Church, which is located on Hampton Boulevard. Uh, this literally shows a map from the old polling place to the new polling place. Currently in Bowling Park Precinct, there are 3,015 registered voters. In the 2016 presidential election, 1,907 cast their ballot. We've coordinated parking with the principal, and we are working with the Norfolk Police Department with additional parking around the school area when needed on election day. This is the pictures of the school. We would be utilizing the gym facilities inside the school. As you go into the school, it's right past the cafeteria on your left-hand side. Zion Grace Precinct, as we indicated, is no longer able to serve as a polling place. Uh, we have <coughs> researched and recommended moving into Second Presbyterian Church. It has adequate space amenities. It is ADA accessible. It has been reviewed and um, completed by the City of Norfolk as far as ADA compliance is concerned. We've also talked with the church session in advance of this because it is a private facility that we would have to get their approval and they are happy to have us come into that facility. This is an exterior of the church from the street. Um, it shows you've got a ramp and we would be using the fellowship hall inside the church. There are no other activities that really go on um, during the day at that location so we thought that was a really good move to move into this location. Of course, we are on strict timeline guidelines because we have a June 13th primary. We would have to send notifications out to the political parties, the candidates that are running for office, as well as all registered voters within the precinct. We would include maps. We post information on our website as well as in the Norfolk Compass, um, and we'll blast it out with social media to make sure that everybody's informed of these polling place changes. We'll post signs at the former buildings uh, to let people know in case they happen to go to the old location to go to the new location. And that is it. Yes. Um, so Zion Grace will conceivably, if we vote on it, move to Second Press. Yes. Zion Grace will still be listed as the precinct name? It would be Second Press. It would follow that because that precinct has like six neighborhoods that encompass it. Algonquin Park, North Meadowbrook, Lockhaven, Riverfront. You couldn't exactly name it off of one of the neighborhoods in that precinct. So we were going with Second Press as we do with a lot of our private facilities. The churches typically follow the precinct name. Um, so we were going with Second Pres as the precinct name and Second Presbyterian. I know where you're going with that. I saw the wink. <laughs> um, we couldn't pick one of the communities to call it the whole neighborhood because there's like six communities within that neighborhood. So also, so for example, Stewart is now at the zoo. Right. The polling place is typically the name of the building. The precinct normally is the name of the area that it encompasses, unless you've got so many civically groups or organ communities within that precinct, then we try and we try and encompass it based on the neighborhood is what we've done in the past. We typically don't name it after any particular individual or anything like that. Um, for example, Taylor Elementary, the precinct is called Taylor, but the school is WH Taylor. So we have the polling place listed as the polling place or the building, but the precinct is Taylor. Um, Ballantyne, we've got the polling place as the Ray and Joan Crockcore Community Center, but the precinct is Ballantyne because that's a community. Norview is in the Norview community, Sherwood, Sherwood community, Rosemont, and so forth. Yeah, I just that's what we've as, done as in the past. Stuart, for 
example is a little confusing when you go to the zoo. Right. So um, I, know, I know there have been some discussions about uh, bowling park event or major bowling stuff, um, similar to. Put your ball. Well, again, Taylor, not being W. H. Taylor, Richard Bowling would be just. Also, Taylor's not the name of the area. So. Right. Why is it Taylor? It's been Taylor since they incorporated it. Well, since that was before I came on the staff right, a so long Mrs. time ago. Mrs. Gray is then Dr. Whitley. So if we're changing names, mm -hmm. and it's the and we're talking about time frames for changing names, then it seems to me like if we're going to do it, we may as well do it because we're doing it for one of the precincts. The name of the precinct mm -hmm. is actually changing. Mm -hmm. So we could take the Richard Bowling, the current Bowling Park, since Bowling Park does not exist any longer, and make the polling place Broad Creek. <coughs> and then the polling location would be Richard <coughs> Elementary School. Okay, so you'd want to make, you would want to make the precinct name Broad, Broad Creek, Creek to cover that community. Right. Gotcha. Absolutely. I got you. I got because what you're saying. Because if we do it as Broad Creek, it includes, it, it includes <coughs> okay. the entire uh, community. Whole, yeah. The no city attorney's right. office will have to adjust the ordinance for that, but yeah, because right. that's. I think we can do that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if we're doing it all now and you're, we're saying there's time, yeah, it takes time, then we may as well just right. go ahead because and do it all at one This time. would come up for a public hearing and council vote at your April 11th session. Okay, Mr. Smigel and um, Mrs. Johnson. Is it the? Is it the during the census time when we do all the redistricting that yes. you would want to make major changes? Yes. Okay. So just keep that in mind because you'll probably still be in the position. So I hope so. Uh, yes. <laughs> but that um, doing a better job with these matching of these communities and names would probably be mm -hmm. a good time to do it. A big, a good overhaul of this because um, it's it comes up every time we talk about precinct changes. Yeah. We bring bring that in, and we understand your constraints and finding locations. I do think it's. Do we have a first press? Um, we have a third press. We have a third press. We have a second. Break. I was just saying we don't have a first. We don't have. I know we could find we have to one. Work but. a little bit harder. To, <laughs> and uh, we are. When you mentioned that, as far as the lines, we were. I know Dr. Wibley talked about Old Dominion Precinct. Um, we're going to come back and talk to you after the June election. There are a couple of lawsuits right now pending with the House of Delegates lines. We don't want to change anything that might impact anything that's going on with the lawsuits until that's been cleared up. But we were going to talk to you because the new schools will be done. Um, Ocean View Elementary as well as Larchmont will be done. So we'll be talking to you after the June election on those. So Mrs. Johnson and Mr. Thomas. Oh, I'm, I was going to talk about what triggers uh, a mailing to the voters. Is it name change? Is it just a, a moving a location? What requires it? Both. Either one. Right. Either one. If we change the, whether we, when we do this, whether it was just an address change or it was a name change of a building, we have to send notification out to the voters. Angela, y'all are okay with requiring notification. It's just to change the name. It's going to have to go out anyway. It, it would because the action of location. I got you. Okay. So it's not going to be double. Gotcha. It's going to be the same thing. Okay. Be so one fail swoop. Get the whole thing done at once. Once. Right. Gotcha. My apologies. Yeah. Mr. Riddick, do you have anything? No, I'm fine. Thank you. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. Mr. Manager, I, um, are you all okay on the hazard mitigation plan? It's pretty straightforward. It's in your in your policy. But you'll vote on that. Uh, seeing everybody comfortable. And then, Mike, if, if you don't mind, if you can jump up and give, uh, again, you've got two items 
uh, next week that uh, one for brownfield uh, bond issuance, one for wastewater, pretty straightforward. But again, they're large amounts, so I think it's just good for you and the public to hear what we're doing. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Council, Mr. Manager. Uh, we're going to talk about two, as the manager said, two bond issuances uh, that are coming to you next week. The first one is for a brownfield remediation project. Uh, we'll be asking for up to $3 million using the Virginia Water Facilities Revolving Fund. Uh, the nice thing about this is the interest rate is subsidized by the state and federal government, so we're going to be able to borrow this money for a quarter of a percent uh, with a 10-year repayment plan with it. It will be used uh, for improvements to the uh, campus-style landfill. Uh, the second one is going to be an issuance of general obligation bonds, or I'm sorry, wastewater system revenue bonds of up to $12 million. Uh, this is going to be used to improve pump stations uh, in different parts of the city. Uh, as a result of the size of the issuances, the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality is basically letting us have this money for 0% interest. Um, so we're able to uh, make good use of it in improving our, some of our pump stations throughout the city. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Um, oh, Mr. Riddick? Yeah. And Mrs. Johnson. Yeah, I was under the impression that uh, there was federal dollars, tax-free federal dollars, for brownfield removal, that there were grants for, for brownfield removal. Did they stop that? I know they, you know, they had it at one time. Uh, I'd have to look into that, Mr. Reddick. Right. Uh, I know that we are using, uh, we have used the Virginia Water Facilities Revolving Fund before mm -hmm. to do things with wastewater and water. Uh, this right. is our first time using it for a brownfield project. Right. Um, whether this will qualify for the grant or not, I'd have to check. Yeah, no, whether it used to be, I don't know if it'll be continued that you've seen the new budget. Right. Well, the mayor announced the, the $200,000 grant that we got uh, that was since I've gotten here, so in the last yeah. month right. or so. So we are still trying to tap into those. So, so what is, what, at Campus Solid, you're doing what? There's an air sparging system that we're going to put in. Um, and, and that's what? what? I wish I could tell you. <laughs> I have, uh, yeah, I need uh, somebody from Public Works to be able to talk about that. Uh, and we are going to we are going to build an access road. Google it. There's Public Works. I see. Yes, parts of the system basically helps basically basically have runoff off the landfill. Helps basically uh, clean up the runoff from the landfill. Keep it contained. And so basically, it's a mechanical system using basically the, the air basically help basically remediate that, that, that runoff and keep it contained. Thank you, Mr. Rich, for mailing yeah, Thank you. <laughs> All right, Ms. Johnson. Um, Mr. Goldsmith, when you were talking about the waste, water, and the pumps, and you, you said that they will be throughout the city, yes, have those areas been identified? Yes, ma'am. It will be uh, the Lindenwood Pump Station, Fairmont Park Pump Station, Bayview Cottage Line Pump Station, and the East Ocean View Pump Station. I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am, I'll okay. do that. Thank you. Thanks. And Chief, would you send that information to the task force meeting in May? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. We'll do that. Okay. Thanks, sir. All right. Um, so back to the house, and now on to, on to housing. So again, this is the idea of um, the, the theme for the work session, and, and Susan Perry's gonna step up and um, show you a handful of slides. And um, again, this is really about strengthening neighborhoods and the approach that uh, the recommendations that are coming out of the HRNA study and uh, are looking for some um, conversation and discussion. Thank you. 
Well, good evening, Mayor, members of Council. Um, it's my pleasure to be here today to present to you staff's recommendations for an affordable housing pilot program uh, used to strengthen neighborhoods. Um, as you'll recall, the Norfolk uh, plan to reduce poverty recommended that the city do uh, a citywide affordable housing study, which we undertook last year with HRNA advisors. Um, they presented that market analysis and needs assessment to you at your council retreat in September, and then those recommended housing strategies um, to city council in November. And so the final stage of that housing uh, strategy um, is a neighborhood level strategy that uh, is what we're going to talk about today. So I'm just going to briefly review the goals of that housing study, provide you the criteria used for how we're developing this neighborhood level strategy, and then detail the recommendations and funding requests for its implementation. <clears throat> we know that City Council identified three priority areas, um, education, public safety, and housing. So today, obviously, we're focusing on housing, but this is particularly exciting to the work that we're doing around resilience and poverty reduction because the research shows us that um, all of these things are interrelated and connected. And so affecting change in one of the areas will create outcomes or change in the others. And so we believe that investing in housing will also help you see results in these other priority areas as well. So just to remind you again, uh, manager uh, spoke about this. These two goals, uh, based on your feedback, uh, outline our housing plan. And they are the strengthening neighborhoods and uh, deconcentrating poverty. And so today we'll focus on that just on that strengthening neighborhood section. <clears throat> and so within this first goal, we're really recommending housing strategies with a geographic focus. And so we want to present to you or propose to you a pilot program that would test just some of the strategies that were in that, um, those recommended strategies from HRNA in two neighborhoods over the next five years. <clears throat> so you'll recall that the HRNA report showed that Norfolk is really uh, made up of various uh, housing submarkets. So we have strong submarkets, tipping point, and fragile submarkets. And they all have varying stabilities and different characteristics that will require different approaches to address the, the housing strategies in each. In strong submarkets, those are submarkets that are generally functioning well, and they really don't require a lot of action from the city's housing programs. Here we might just develop uh, policy changes that would be appropriate in these submarkets. So we might see some kind of inclusionary zoning policy that would allow more families to access neighborhoods of opportunity. In fragile submarkets, uh, these are really submarkets that require a greater level of funding and programming, and they're going to really benefit benefit from that strong resident engagement activities, leadership, uh, capacity building. We really want to invest in the fragile submarkets that have those strong leadership um, qualities and that are sort of close to being into those tipping point submarkets. And then lastly, the tipping point submarkets are those that are really on the cusp of neighbor, neighborhood health. So they generally possess um, assets that can be leveraged, and with just a little bit of city uh, investment, it can catalyze, uh, catalyze additional private investment into those markets. And so we want to build on the strengths that are already occurring in those neighborhoods so that we can really maximize our impact. And so this pilot program is really going to um, focus on those types of markets, those tipping point submarkets. <clears throat> HRNA used um, certain criteria for categorizing uh, the submarkets into these th three groups. Uh, just as a baseline, they looked at uh, population growth, medium rents, uh, home values, and the household income, 
and then also vacancy rates, home ownership rates, and poverty rates. And so that was just to kind of put them into buckets. But they really pushed us to say, you know, you really have to be even more strategic um, within, even at this neighborhood level strategy, uh, in choosing the neighborhoods that, that you want to work in. And so um, they want to make sure that we use some other criteria to, to pick neighborhoods. Uh, those that are really already experiencing some kind of market activity on their own. <clears throat> those neighborhoods in which we can coordinate housing investments with other investments. And so um, areas like Military Circle or Ward's Corner, where we're already having a lot of economic um, development in those areas that we could coordinate our housing investments with. Um, they want to really take care of, excuse me, take advantage of neighborhood anchors. So those places that have good uh, transportation options, high quality childcare in the area, healthcare facilities, accredited schools, um, grocery stores, those anchors that really have the potential to spur additional revitalization. They tell us that they really should be small enough to impact, and so I'll talk a little bit more about this, but, but the, the data point that they give us is that we have to be able to impact one in eight housing units to really um, uh, catalyze additional investment. And so um, we're talking about a neighborhood that's you know, uh, small enough in size that we can really impact it. It should have strong community leadership. It should represent a co cohesive submarket so that it's not you know, crossing over major corridors. Um, and it really should be adjacent to or, or next to a strong uh, residential submarket. <clears throat> and so based on all of that information gathered in the housing study, um, staff got together to de develop these five recommendations. Uh, the first was really to establish a cross-departmental uh, task force on affordable housing, which we've already done. Um, this includes the departments of planning, economic development, the resilience office, uh, neighborhood development, budget and strategic planning, and then also our housing authority. And so this group got together and began really kind of looking at the study and the recommendations to see, uh, to bring you this, this pilot program. But we see a role for this group on an ongoing basis. This group should really be the one that coordinates uh, the activities. So where the investments go, what are the right programs in each uh, specific neighborhood. Uh, we'll give insight on sort of the, the discussions happening in the neighborhood. They will also refine the budget and shift among the programs we'll talk about in a minute based on the impact that they're seeing. They would monitor the impact of the work and report that back to city leadership as well as the external partners. And then this would be the group that would also bring any policy recommendations for council consideration in, in this area of affordable housing. Um, secondly, we, we feel, feel it's really important to let you know that we want to continue all of the existing programs. So those programs like Rent Ready, Derelict Structure Program, Code Enforcement, um, all of these programs will continue, and, and none of the money that, that um, are currently in those programs would be used to, to fund a new pilot program. We also want to continue using our current federal dollars, like the Community Development Block Grant, CDBG, and home dollars um, in fragile submarkets. And so in those neighborhoods that we're already really seeing a great amount of investment by the community, um, for example, the program you'll hear about in Old Huntersville um, from James Rogers and his partners, those are the types of programs that are, are not just housing strategies, but community development strategy, strategies that really are going to make the overall difference in neighborhood health. So in these uh, neighborhoods, we want to intensify the current funding that we're an investment that we're already doing. Thirdly, again, we want to select two neighborhoods to work in over the next one to five years. 
Um, so this task force that has been meeting is, is analyzing the data, really kind of looking at what neighborhoods make sense. Um, but we were, would really like to get council input uh, before moving forward on selecting uh, the neighborhoods to work in. Um, and then we're asking for um, 750,000 in new unrestricted funding in FY18, and then an additional two million each year for five years after that to implement these recommended strategies. And so um, we really wanna see if we can move the market and catalyze additional investment in these tipping point neighborhoods. Again, these are neighborhoods that are already seeing some city investment and then we think that they could be tipped into those strong uh, sub-markets. And so it really needs to see that investment of new dollars. And then lastly, would, we would engage external partners. So that's through the efforts of neighborhood development that they're already doing and economic development. How can we work with our residents to do other community activities that will strengthen a neighborhood like block cleanups? Also, you know, the residents would be the ones to help us analyze what blocks of a specific neighborhood we should prioritize for the investments. And then we really want to also seek to engage local business owners that are in close proximity to the neighborhoods and see how they might be able to utilize facade improvement grants or other business development programs so that we're always uh, strategically working to align our existing efforts uh, to complement our housing strategies. <clears throat> and so how the funding request breaks down is outlined here on this slide. Um, as I mentioned, uh, HRNA tells us that our investments must impact the one in eight uh, housing units in order to catalyze additional investment. And so um, this funding request is based on uh, achieving that goal in two pilot neighborhoods. So again, neighborhoods that are small enough to impact here over five years at this amount of funding, it's about 400, a little over 400 housing units. And so we're talking about, you know, two neighborhoods with, you know, around 3,400 housing units. And then the specific programs here that we've outlined using are the ones that we really feel like we can uh, tackle with our current capacity. So Renovate Norfolk um, is an existing program run out of the uh, Department of Neighborhood Development and it assists homeowners with residential improvements to owner-occupied resident properties. And so currently that program is both for interior or exterior programs. But what our housing study showed us is that we should really focus on exterior improvements that really um, improve the property or the neighborhood appearance. And so for this funding, it would be strictly for exterior improvements. The grants would total $15,000 per, uh, per unit. And, um, you know, currently that funding is available only on an income uh, restricted basis. So this new unrestricted funding would give us some, some greater flexibility in, in that regard. Um, over in FY18, you see that that allows us, that amount of funding allows us to impact 23 homes and then 66 homes each year after that. In the down payment assistance program, again, it's a current program run by our housing authority. It provides up to $40,000 to qualifying first-time home buyers. So again, we would want to target this funding to our two pilot uh, neighborhoods just to really increase home ownership. <clears throat> And then rental rehab, this would be a new program for us. Um, and it would offer assistance to landlords to make substantial improvements to their rental properties. It would help pr preserve affordability in these targeted neighborhoods on a long-term basis. 
and they it's uh, $25,000, it could be a grant or a loan, again, this is a new program that we would have to develop, but we anticipate requiring property owners to provide matching funds or um, at the very least participate in our rent ready program, so it begins to provide uh, that carrot for participating in that program, and, and maybe even consider um, requiring them to accept public housing vouchers. <clears throat> so, um, you know, over the next five years, we're talking just, you know, just a around $9 million that we would put into this uh, pilot program. Those are our recommendations, and I'm happy to answer any questions you have as you discuss. Mrs. Graves. Okay, I have two questions. Uh, let's start with the landlords first. Um, I know we want to have better rentals from our, our landlords, but what I have a problem with fundamentally is when we have landlords who own property outright and they're still pieces of junk. And then for the city to come in and spend our taxpayer dollars to improve that property for that <coughs> landlord to go up on their rent and the property is owned free and clear in the first place. I think there need, it, I mean, if it's going to be a loan, it definitely needs to be a loan, especially if the property is owned free and clear. If they have, if there's an existing mortgage on it, then maybe a silent second. But I just, you know, if, if you own the property free and clear and all you're doing is just taking the money and running with it, I know the point, I know where we're trying to get to, but to me there's just something fundamentally wrong with that picture if they own the property free and clear and are collecting rent every month from tenants. So that, that's the one issue. And then the other one is um, when we're doing uh, um, for the, the owner-occupant piece, um, I know we have some income restrictions now. Are you suggesting that we take all the income restrictions away or are we just going to increase those income restrictions? I think we would have, I mean, we would have to talk about it and it would likely be on a case. Some of it will depend on the neighborhood that's chosen. Doesn't um, it also depend upon the law? Uh, we don't have uh, the ability to give money to very wealthy people. Um, uh, likewise, with the uh, subsidy of rental apartments, um, we don't have the authority to give slumlords grants. We would be able to contract to purchase an obligation from them uh, to provide Section 8 vouchers. So you've got a lot of things that you've still got to work through. Sure. That's a new, absolutely, it's a new program. So there, it would have to completely be developed. And we look at, and will we be also looking at assets yeah. as well, like we do with the uh, tax abatement program as well? Basically, what we would do is uh, we use all the tools that we have, and what you do is you look at a strength in the block, and you say, okay, we have this program, which would be that we have, or we have some other program, and you do those programs on the block to strengthen that block. You may do what one house, you may do uh, rehab money using CDBG, which is income limit, or you may use the of money that we get from the general fund where it's not capped. So again, you're going to take these and you're going to take that block and strengthen it using the various tools that you have to make sure you get that whole block. So this gives us a, a menu or uh, options that we can use when we get in the block. And when we talk to like a, when we go to a civic league or talk to like Old Huntersville, they tell us what block they want to 
start on, and then we work our tools on that block. This just gives us a, because what happens is when you have that income restriction, uh, sometimes you can't really do a whole lot, but if you have the money that we have that we're proposing in this, now you can do several options on one block, strengthen that block, go to the next block. Mrs. Johnson, and then Mr. Thomas. Um, when you talk about the communities that will be identified, um, have you worked out the, the process on how you will identify the, the two communities to pilot? So um, we have looked at the data in terms of sort of putting them in these broad categories, but that is where we would like to get feedback from council. Um, so we'll come back with a recommendation. We're not, we're not going to run off and go pick two neighborhoods without y'all approving what we're doing. So I, I like the idea of picking a, a fragile submarket, as you're describing, that's also close to some area of the city that's having some success, so we can feed off of that success. And in the same vein, I like that we're focusing on, like HRNA said, one in eight units. So if, if we can really invest in a core area, that becomes the next economically successful area, and it will affect everything around it as well. So I, I think this is a it's smart uh, Smart direction to go with this program. I appreciate where you're going with it. Um, if you could hit on a little bit more with the rental rehab program, what services does that provide to, to educate kind of the renters, if anything? So the Rent Ready program, which we would require as part yes, of, uh, of the rehab program, um, is a current program that is run out of uh, Mr. Rogers' uh, department, and it works with landlords and with renters. So it teaches renters how to be a good tenant, um, sort of all of those things. They have uh, different academies that they that the landlord and the renter can go through. So it teaches landlords how to be good landlords and tenants how to be good tenants. And that's kind of required part of Absolutely. investing this money. You've got to go through this training. Absolutely. Um, and, and I guess the only other part that I, I think that uh, council has to understand is that uh, this is a five-year program uh, we can't wake up next year and say, hey, we're not going to continue to do this because then there's no reason to do it at all. Absolutely. We've got to be committed to do this all the way through to get to the 428 or so homes. That's correct. Dr. Whitley. I'm just going to comment on what Martin said. Um, when we started the VEP program in Park Place, it was very interesting because the consultant came in and where your first blush is to try to fix the worst neighborhood that that actually was the least successful. And instead, we fixed the least bad neighborhood and then grew it from there. And it really was a, a different way because, of course, your first impulse is to try to fix the most at need. But it was throwing bad money at bad. So it really has worked. And, and that model, I think, um, is one that we ought to be able to generate. Basically, was the beginning of our neighborhood neighbors building neighborhood. The other uh, part with this uh, rent ready, this is what we've started you know, over at Old Dominion in the areas there. It's that is, of course, voluntary, but it's a start, you know, to start working and encouraging. And we're hoping that we can get the word out to parents that when they're picking rental <coughs> properties for their kids to live in, that they're choosing those programs uh, with um, landlords that have, have uh, made the, you know, made the effort to improve their property. I think it's it's um, so important. Mrs. Graves? Um, how have we or have we looked at how the proposed budget cuts, and I know it's simply just a proposal out of D.C., 
but it's, something is going to be cut and in the way of CDBG funds and, and things that impact um, our neighborhoods and services. So are we hopeful that we'll keep CDBG funds or are we making this plan with a realistic expectation that CDBG funds may end up just being a plus or are we, you know, where, where, where are we fitting all that in? So, so we don't know, we don't know. So right. we, we sent you all that article a couple of weeks ago. So one of the, you know, the, the sky is falling relative to HUD. And so I think it's a, it's a great question. Uh, we have for this first two years, we've identified some fu some funding that's outside of federal money, that's outside of CDBG, so that we can be off and running, kind of go worst case scenario. Okay. But, but we're following that closely and um, it, it's worrisome. We could build aircraft carriers in these neighborhoods and maybe then the money would come in. All right. <laughs> Mr. Smeagol. I just uh, want to make sure that when this gets presented to us, you know, in the past, uh, there's new projects that get proposed, but we still have the same pot of money that we're pulling from. And I, I just want to make sure that we're not pulling away from other things that we've been committed to over the years, um, and particularly with neighborhood funding. And, you know, it, it was about two or three years ago, trying to look around who... We, could, we, we kind of were going away from targeting specific neighborhoods. I understand the purpose of this is more for the housing part of it, um, but it, it does, as Martin was saying, it causes problems later on down the road, and so this council could change some more, um, you know, when people are trying to get resources for their ward or whatever, and they, you can say, oh, I've got this project for my ward, and this ward doesn't have anything. And we were trying to get away from designating money towards projects um, in particular neighborhoods. So when this is sold, I, I, we can't look at it as a neighborhood project. This is a city project dealing with housing issues. So I don't even like, you know, using the terminology, we're going to go pick neighborhoods. We're going to go pick, you know, we need to pick section of the city, you know, or I know that sounds kind of um, minor, but it, it is. It, it, it's, it's, it's bigger than what you may think it is. Um, and particularly when you're still, you know, we don't have extra cash going into our budget. So you're taking money from some other thing that, to make this happen. And we'll see that when you reveal your budget. Um, and we just want to make sure that we're keeping some of those other things hold, those other things that have been relying on some of this funding um, over the years, and that we're now shifting this over to some other uh, priority, which is important. But how we slowly release that from those other things that have been funded. Yeah. Unless you found cash somewhere, uh, unless you found cash somewhere and you're, you haven't told us yet. I guess my question is, how would you compare this to Denby Park? And all the money that was raised and spent in Denby Park for acquisition, demolition, you know. Well, so my comparison. So my thought would be, one, we're not, we, we never finished Denby Park. We stopped putting money in there because we went away from putting money into, they were, it's not done. Um, and and I would actually rather I would rather us go back to some of that model. If there's these neighborhoods like Demi Park that we need to continue targeting. I'd I'd like to see two million dollars go back in the Demi Park and continue finish 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 what we started. We never did that, and and because we were getting away from that. But that would Demi Park became kind of a council agreement. That was something that we all. Because really it. But felt but, but that, the developers out of this didn't it's, go in there because we put a lot of money. Denby Park, I think the um put one little section in. But we put a lot of money in, in that. 
I don't think we put as much in as we put in like Fairmont Park or some other neighborhoods. Well, nowhere near as it, as yeah, it got it got started. Outside. And then it, yeah, <laughs> and then we and then we stopped. I mean, we were only putting in about a million dollars a year and pick. We were lucky to pick up some big blocks of apartment buildings, but it's not finished. Well, we, but we made appreciable gains. Right. So we did absolutely. I mean, every, there's nobody that would argue there is. There's not improvements there, and 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 at the end, Denby Park may be one of the areas that we look at um, as one of these projects, project areas. Mrs. Johnson didn't, uh, Mr. I think that what we're, we're looking at and what the governing body all agreed upon is that we take a look at the city as a whole um, we're, when we're addressing um, neighborhoods. Um, as far as Fairmont Park is concerned, it's just about done. So there's no need to discuss uh, Fairmont Park because we know that when it was started, the city, the decisions were made. Majority of us, uh, well, four of us were not on the board, so that's in the past. And I think that we need to um, move forward. As we also discussed, um, one thing that we're working on is trying to find the strengths in neighborhoods and to teach our citizens that there is good within your neighborhood. It's just a matter of finding what the good is finding what the strength is, and then taking that and launching what could be the great possibilities in the communities. I don't want to focus, make it a focus on the wards, because if we want people to come home to Norfolk, it's gonna take every community in the city of Norfolk to get the leverage that we need to bring people home to Norfolk. So I want to remind the governing body that that is what our focus is, that every community becomes a community of choice, that people will have an opportunity to choose where they live in the city of Norfolk. All right, Mr. Cullen and Mr. Manager. Um, I just wanted to clarify, <clears throat> well, first of all, I would say, number one, I like the idea of focus and execution, right? The key to getting anything done and really moving the needle somewhere is to have a focused effort, so I appreciate that. And I think the challenge is it'd be easy to spread the money around, but if we're really gonna see something happen, I, so I appreciate that. Uh, but I wanted to clarify what tipping point, tipping point neighborhoods means. Uh, Martin mentioned fragile, and I, I went back to the study, the HRNA study, um, and so you know, tipping point means that has some real viability there, and that the median home value is 170 to 250,000. Um, you know, I hope that we're going to be possibly near good schools, good transportation. I mean, there's a lot of factors that you guys are going to to, to, to uh, follow. Um, the only other thing that I wanted to offer, though, is as we think about investing on all these different um, housing investments. It's also important that we're investing in infrastructure in whatever neighborhood or area that we focus on because it's great to have a good looking uh, driveway in front of house and nice roof but if you've got crappy streets and sidewalks and flooding it's going to not work so well so i just think we need to combine that in the okay. discussion this is johnson how does the my question would be uh mr manager how does the city determine the infrastructure that is needed in the communities? Well, it's, how it's, is that identified? Yeah, it's a um, 
frankly, it's listening to you all in terms of your priorities. It's through the capital improvement program, which is a, a six-year process uh, that we go through, um, maybe a six-year program that we identify as one of long-term pieces. Um, in terms of how you all selected Fairmont Park and other neighborhoods, you know, I, I wasn't here for those conversations. But I think what I'm hearing Ms. McClellan say is, and what we would say to you is, you want to, to the extent you can match these investments. So that one of the things I signed something earlier, there is some utility work going in the neighborhood, and we're going to go ahead and make sure that while we're tearing that up, we, we redo the sidewalk. So you try to do this stuff in an intelligent way that, that spends money where it's needed, but also where it can be leveraged. Mrs. Graves. I have a question to piggyback off that because I had simply ask, and I think I have the answer, but you'll tell me if I was right. Um, you were right, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> At least I thought I was when I answered the question. Um, one of Civicleaks asked the question about um, when we come in and do road pavings, and then let's say Dominion, uh, Virginia Power comes in and they dig up something, or Virginia Natural Gas comes in and they dig up something, and it, are we, I thought the answer was yes, but are we coordinating what we're doing so that that one road doesn't get dug up three times with, you know, different, for, for three different reasons, when we could dig one hole, do everything that needed to be done, and then repave it and be done with it all. Yeah, we, my observation is you've done that and done that well. You know, in the 90 days I've been here, we've had those conversations and it, and it has happened well. I've seen a lot of nods on the back row. I think it's one of the things that local government takes a hit for from time to time as we've done exactly what you just described. But as we're talking about projects, we're certainly having those kinds of conversations in our development action team meetings, and, and I think we do that piece very well. And I don't know, David, if you want to add anything to that in, in terms of no, how you No, you raised the first point, and, and what we're working on is basically as an all-projects map, basically in terms of all the local projects we have doing internally, and also coordinate with all the utility projects. So that anyone who has a project can click on this called database and see what's, what's programmed for the next six to 12 months. Are they doing that, though? Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I was right there. Okay. All right, so Mayor, Ms. McClellan actually stole my, my closing line, which is exactly that. It, it is, this is really about focus and implementation. And, and, and what Mr. Smigel said in terms of not taking money away from things we're already doing, I'm hearing you loud and clear. At the same time, I think you've got to stay the, once we do make the selection, and we made a very conscious decision not to talk neighborhoods tonight because we really wanted you focused on these criteria and how you select these and understanding that we've got what we think is a, a very thoughtful approach um, to identify these neighborhoods, uh, but you can't go in and, and dip your toe in and then pull out and think you've done something. And so if we sit here in a year or two and say, you know, hey, I need, let's, this was a success, let's go start it over here, you got to finish um, what you started. So, so we're excited. Keep in mind, we'll come back here, you know, four meetings from now, We'll be back talking about housing, and so you'll have had a chance to reflect on this, and uh, we'll, we'll keep this conversation going. But I think I'm hearing, you like what you're hearing, and move forward. Yes. Yes, sir. Great. Okay. Thank you. All right. So to be more specific, you know, now we'll talk about Old Huntersville. So we thought it was, it'd be uh, good timing. Uh, you've got a, a community and, a, and, a, and staff that have spent a lot of time working through this plan. Again, we're talking about putting something in place that, that I got to tell you, I've never seen before, so I think it's pretty unique. We're also saying we should put it in place for old Huntersville, and I think some of you are going to look around and go, hey, I want this. But we're really saying let's, let's, 
let, let these folks take advantage of this, use this program themselves first, see what kind of success uh, we can have here. So I think Lenny Newcomb is going to um, actually uh, frame the conversation for us. Mr. Mayor, members of uh, City Council, thank you for the opportunity. And this is a pretty exciting initiative that we want to talk to you about tonight. Last summer, we started a dialogue on what could we do in Huntersville to stimulate some infill construction. Mr. Riddick was interested in it. He, he approached us. At the same time, uh, old Huntersville Civic League was doing something that most of our Civic Leagues have never done, and that is they were developing their own plan for their own neighborhood from the grassroots out. And the efforts came together rather well as we went into the fall. So we uh, decided that the best thing we could do in there, look at the, the prevalence of the lots that we have, look at what the opportunities are, and approach it from the, the uh, avenue of let's create a, a plan book that would um, go all the way to the point of having permit-ready plans for builders to go into this neighborhood. We've identified at least 400 vacant lots, 100 of which are owned by the city, and so the plan book intention was that we would, and we, we hired uh, WPA to go in, design uh, infill houses that were compatible, that were affordable, that would fit in the neighborhood, and that had a diversity so that we could take a series of basic plans, change them into over 100 options. Um, and we're going to talk to you about that. Mel um, Price is here from WPA. But before I, I introduce Mel, I'm going to introduce V. Garvin who is the uh, president of Old Honersville Civic League, and I'd her give you their perspective of this. Good evening. Good evening. All right. Uh, I want to say greetings and share greetings from my community of Old Honersville to our mayor, and I would be remiss if I did not recognize our um, council persons, Councilman Riddick and Councilwoman Graves. And welcome to everyone, and thank you. Thank you so, so, so very much for the opportunity to express to you on behalf of my community of, of Old Huntersville. And for those of you who may not be quite familiar, we are strategically located about five country blocks, if you will, from this very location. So in your conversation and working with us, we are really having a direct impact on the city of Norfolk. We are contiguous to the um, Tidewater Drive Corridor, as well as the Tidewater Drive Corridor. So really, you can't really get to downtown unless you come by way of the interstate. You have to come through Old Huntersville. So just another reason or two to kind of raise us as far as consideration for, for this particular program. But uh, to express on behalf of my neighborhood of Old Huntersville, our sincere appreciation to our many city partners and especially to WPA and to Mr. Rogers' department, planning as well, for their support in providing the necessary technical assistance and the rezoning plan book efforts that's needed to bring our vision of a safe, healthy, and vibrant community back to, back to fruition. Our partnership with WPA has generated so much excitement and, op, um, and optimism. WPA, along with the Department of Planning and the Neighborhood Development, have invested so much time and effort 
to capture just right what we think to be the architectural flavor and character of what we would like to, what we showcase as the historically significant uh, community. So once again, I just want to thank you. We are calling on you, please, to join in, to continue to join in with us. We thank you for all that you do and will continue to do on behalf of a community that is solely committed and sincere in the revitalization of our community. You all have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Building upon the presentation you just had, we're as aware as you are and everyone else is that, that a plan book is but one of the many tools that we're gonna need to bring to bear in Huntersville. And that's where James's department, uh, neighborhood development will pick up the ball and carry more of it. But our part of this um, is something that we're very excited about. I want to introduce Mel Price from WPA Architects so she can show you the genesis of what we've got um, and what we've done so far. and members of council, thank you so much. Um, when we began this project, we started with reading and thoroughly understanding the strategic plan that the neighborhood of Old Huntersville put together. Um, so Anthony and several of the folks at WPA went out. I think we've attended four or five um, civic league meetings now. Uh, we walked the neighborhood and we looked at um, the key strategic goals of the community and picked out five goals that we thought that this plan book could, could serve to meet. Um, so walking through this presentation, um, B and, and the constituents had looked at some of the new houses being built in Huntersville and said, you know, there's some things being built that are serving um, the community well, but they're not quite fitting into our traditional character. So it is important to old Huntersville that everything um, carry on the tradition. Now, yes. Can you go back and sure. Give some explanation on the differences and why one's Sure. Um, Old Huntersville is a beautiful historic neighborhood, and as we move on in the presentation, um, you'll see um, nearly every single house has a front porch that's elevated somewhere between, I'd say, two and three feet off the ground. It's a family-oriented community, so families sit out on the porches talk to their neighbors um, on either side and across the street. Um, provides a means to gather and a way to look out and um, get eyes on the street. So it helps to create a safe environment. Um, the house on the right, while it's also serving um, a means of housing a, a, a family and providing a, a great place to live, um, it doesn't provide that same opportunity to be elevated above the street, connect with your neighbors on adjacent porches, and look across the street and get the, the eyes on the street. Um, from an architectural perspective, uh, the peak of the roof, which calls out kind of the important part of the building, is centered over the garage. So it's calling attention to the garages. Is this is the most important thing on the house, which is where you drive your car in, go into the house, and then not talk to your neighbors. So, um, so architecturally and aesthetically, I would say most people would say this is not quite as pleasing as the old house. It's the social ramifications of what happens when neighbors stop talking to each other and looking out on the street that's most important. Also, but that mm -hmm. house is that house built on a slab? It is. And so um, 
So all throughout the city, um, whether there are flooding issues in the neighborhood um, or just needing to match the adjacent houses, it's really important um, to start to line up those roof lines, line up your floor-to-floor -floor levels, and get everybody on the same plane. So, um, Councilman Thomas, did I answer your question? Okay. Um, there are, as, as um, Mr. Newcomb said, over 400 uh, vacant lots within the neighborhood. And as you start to look at this map, um, you see these kind of missing teeth throughout a series of houses on the, on the block. And most of those vacant lots are non-standard lots. So those are 25 uh, feet wide. And in order to build on one of those non-standard lots, we go through the city's non-standard uh, with lot process. Um, and, or they go for a special exception. So it, it takes a long time for someone to design a home and get through the process of building on that lot. So what uh, this program and this um, zoning change is doing is creating a new zoning district uh, for single family, traditional, uh, that allows you by right to build on these 25 foot lots and build some development standards into the zoning district having to do with uh, where you build to, your setback, the orientation, uh, front door and porch faces out to the street. We set our ground floor height so all of the neighbors who are sitting out on their porches are talking to each other at eye level. And you can also see um, along the street uh, the front porches. We want to make sure that we continue the tradition of front porches in Huntersville. And we want to make sure garages are placed um, to the rear of the property, as is traditional in old, in old Huntersville. Um, there are not a lot of room, if you imagine the 25 foot width lots, there's not a lot of room for a driveway. So when you take a look at your draft of the plan book, you'll see a solution for uh, creating a shared driveway that puts the garages or parking pad to the rear of the lot and also creates an opportunity if we, if we start to combine the two garages for neighbors to talk to each other. So um, today people sometimes store their vehicle in a garage, sometimes they put all their cookout um, things in there, they build a workshop. So as neighbors are walking to this shared garage, they have an opportunity to interact again and that builds and strengthens community. And we've, we've talked about all of these items right here, so I'll keep going. So here is the, the draft of your plan book. And if you know about the old um, Sears uh, plan catalogs or house catalogs, this is a modern take on that. So instead of uh, picking out a house and having that house shipped in a box to you on a uh, boxcar on a train, you are going to pick out your plan and your elevation, walk down to City Hall to Development Services, they will hand you one of 144 house plans and uh, you, you work with your builder and, and you're on your way. So it's a complete set of plans. So this is architectural and structural engineering drawings, foundation included, compatible with the neighborhood, affordable, beautiful, and custom tailored to fit in with Old Huntersville. So free set of plans and time saving so it allows the builder and the homeowner to save a significant amount of time and expense. Uh, the plans are pre-approved so in one day someone can walk down pick out their house and pull a permit. Um, most of you have, are probably really familiar with Old Huntersville but I wanted to walk you through just to, to kind of show you how the houses have evolved over time. So before 1900 uh, traditional homes, front porch, 
usually a series of, of three windows. Um, and this house on the left, you'll hear um, later on, residents love this housing type. It's Italian 8, slightly sloped roof. So it's pretty unique to Old Huntersville. As we move on 1900 to 1919, the tradition continues with the front porch, um, elevated homes, 1920 to 1949. So everything is looking very consistent. Um, styles changed 1950 to 1979. And while we still have some elements that continue, we're starting to lose um, the rhythm of the front porches. We have houses built that are a little bit out of scale with the rest of the neighborhood. And in 1980, we returned to a more traditional house type. Um, but you'll notice the details are not quite the same. So there's an, an element of um, finesse to the details that it's not quite um, what it was back in the turn of the century. And then in 2000 to 2016, some really beautiful homes were built once again that are starting <coughs> to fit in um, to the traditional character. The house on the right, I like to point out because it's, um, it's a traditional home and it, it does fit in, but there's some elements that are not in keeping with Old Huntersville. So this double gable end roof where one part of it projects, that is not found anywhere else in Old Huntersville. So it's those little details and distinctions that um, really help to continue or discontinue the character of the neighborhood. So we started, of course, with working with Ms. B and the residents of the neighborhood. And we wanted to hear first, what do residents love about Old Huntersville? What don't they like? And where do they see opportunities moving forward? And then um, we put together a set of plans, came back and picked through um, floor plans and elevations as if everyone was designing their own dream home, which was really exciting. Reviewed the plans with the community. Um, so I think this is really important to state. What, what old Huntersville residents love about their neighborhood are deep porches with plenty of space for seating around a table, traditional porch columns with brick plinths, the rhythm of the buildings on the narrow lots that feels historically connected. So they want to feel connected to each other. Transoms, lots of natural light, Beautiful street trees with high canopies, original windows. Um, a lot of the original windows have been maintained. Um, good sidewalks and then those unique flat roof houses. What they don't like are the attached garages, the garages in front of the homes. And what they want, which actually really surprised us, are really modern open floor plan interiors within this traditional building shell. So should I keep going? Are you going to jump? Oh, I'll keep going. Here's how it works. So you take your plan book, you pick out your house plan depending on the length of your lot. So we have to the left in blue are 50 foot long houses. Those are 1800 square feet. Those are either four or five bedrooms. Uh, to the left is the first floor plan. Uh, the, the next floor plan over shows our accessible option with um, ADA, fully ADA approved ramp in the back and a, a bedroom suite downstairs. Um, and second floor after that. To the right are 40 foot long houses. Those are 1,500 square feet, and those are either three or four bedrooms. So, what was very important to the residents of Old Huntersville is that they were, um, even these are, though these are small, uh, narrow width homes, they wanted um, maximum number of bedrooms and really well designed and efficient. So, step two you choose your elevation to the far left, your gable end roof your hipped roof after that. 
kind of a combination, which is um, quintessential Old Huntersville, and then your Italianate flat-roofed, slightly sloping roofed option. Step three, you choose your front and rear porch. So we have four front porch options, three back, three rear porch options, and then you choose your uh, windows and materials. So you have um, one over one, two over two, six over two, and six over six options. And then you have um, a palette of materials to choose from. Walk down to development services. Staff will assist with choices, and um, you can pull the permit in the same day. Okay, Thank you so much. You're welcome. I believe I was supposed to actually do the first couple of slides, and I sort of bailed on that. So. I painted. Uh, thank you so much. Um, this is the first neighborhood we're doing this in, and it's not something that we want to jump out and run around the city and do. We want to put it into place and make sure that it works. And as I said earlier, there are other initiatives that are going to have to take place in that neighborhood for this to succeed. We've got to create a, a, a situation where people really want to build there and want to live there. Much of the success that Huntersville has enjoyed has been along the corridor of Church Street, but as you go back further into the neighborhood, we have not had that much success. Since 2013, there have been somewhere in the neighborhood of eight new homes built there. We have seen literally almost 20 to 30 permits a month issued for new homes throughout our city. So it's not happening in Huntersville right now. This is an initiative to try to get that going. Um, the plan book, as Mel indicated, you select that plan, you come down to uh, our permit office. The permits have been pre-reviewed. So if you select a plan, we have a permit ready for you. It does not have to wait. Um, next steps. The plan book and the amendment of the uh, plan Norfolk uh, recommended to the um, Planning Commission on the 23rd. Of February, the Planning Commission will complete public hearings this week on the zoning changes. We will be forwarding those to you all for your hearing in April on the 25th. Are there any questions? Mr. Riddick? Yeah, the only thing I was going to say is something that uh, Mr. McClellan said earlier, and that's the uh, public works dollars that need to go in into uh, one of the uh, uh, traffic flow parking is, a, is going to be a key issue you know when you're dealing with uh, the new homes that we want to construct um, we have two intersections that uh, one, in, one in particular at the corner of uh, Chapel and Prozier Street when it rains it floods just like it like it does at maybe Tywater Drive and Brownton Avenue uh, on Johnson Avenue at uh, Prozier Street water doesn't flow properly so there's a lot of things that we need to do as far as the infrastructure is concerned, you know, before we, you know, not before, but as we, you know, do these, do this project. I think it's a very ambitious project, but it has to be um, supported by the public works dollar. Uh, traffic flow is something that's uh, very important uh, down on uh, O'Keefe Street, going down, uh, straight down O'Keefe Street. I had, we had identified a home that's been for sale that uh, obstructs traffic. You know, you have to go over to the right where we have talked about trying to acquire this piece of property so we can take traffic flow, you know, right through, straight through. So um, I'm sure the community is going to, you know, accept this and be excited about it. 
but it has to be supported with public works dollars. Scraves? Um, I just want to add to that, Ms. Freak, um, in terms of the additional requirements now that we have um, put on the cities by the state that is now passed down to the builder for infrastructure and things of that nature um, that do require them to do more um, when they are building new construction than they have done in the past that will probably remediate some of that issue. But that's only if they're building, is that only if they're building a certain number of homes, right? That's correct. Individual stormwater requirements do not come in as you go house by house. Now, if you're building three or four houses in a row, mm -hmm. you will go through a site plan process. If you're building on infill and you have one house here, one over there, you will not. Are we doing anything to incent builders to build in blocks? Because I, I you know, 1,800 square feet and five bedrooms sounds like a lot of people living in a matchbox to me. Um, but are we doing anything to incent builders to um, build in blocks in somewhat of a new construction fashion in several homes at a time? Right now, we're at the beginning of this. We've identified the 400 lots. We've identified that we have 100 of them. We're looking at where they are, where are the most logical places to, to get a builder to start and obviously, if we can cluster some new homes together, that starts to create strength in the character in the neighborhood. So all of that is is uh, is in what we're doing now. But this is the first step. And are we selling those lots like gem lots, or how are we? How is that process going to? Again, that's a crop process that we're working on. Okay. Okay. And tell me one more thing. Please tell me about the shared driveway. What she's saying is that you can take the smaller lots and choose a house that allows you to put a driveway down between the two houses and then they can park in their independent backyards or they could have a garage at the end of that common driveway that would have a, a wall down the middle and this side would be yours this side would be mine um, you know these small lots these houses can be kept to one side so that we have the space in the middle let's talk about that yeah. we have a lot of those and probably the width of these homes are probably more than 18, 18 feet wide. And you can shift and be right on uh, maybe five feet from the property line. And that allows you to have at least get a nine, uh, nine foot wide. That's exactly the right way it works. Mr. Smeagol. Yep. So um, I, I think this is outstanding. Um, I, I love the work that was put into this. And um, it, it's a good start for moving forward. One of the advantages that old Huntersville has is that the neighborhood has character already in, in it. And so I know that there's been comments made, and as Terry was directing me to really watch this presentation, uh, when, when you go into other parts of the city, you don't have that character. So your older neighborhoods tend to have that character. The Colonial Place is a good example. You know, and then some of your more newer neighborhoods, and I was just showing Angela, because I know we're going to be voting on the two-car garage uh, again versus the one car and I was showing her pictures of all the houses around there and there's no character at all and I know the idea is to get to this with all of it but we're not there yet and, and you have neighborhoods that um, you have neighborhoods that need that um, change they need the new housing and that's why I'm always cautious when we come in and we say I want to restrict 
um, what that developer can do because then the developer goes away and they're not going to build. Uh, some will be scared away from this. Whereas this is different because that it's an expectation when you go into that whole community that everything is kind of there, that character is there. We don't have that in every community. And so I, I agree getting there. I've asked for, Lenny will tell you, I've asked for years for a pattern book for Ocean View and that we could give developers um, you know, uh, ideas so that they could go forward with it. And there's some patterns out there that work, but just it's not, we go down Ocean View Avenue, there's 50 different houses just down Ocean View Avenue alone. Um, and so how do you now take the character, it, it's difficult to take that character and then stick with five or four. It works for this neighborhood and may not work for all the neighborhoods, but there are coastal aspects that you can pull out of some of those designs and we can have some of those requirements. I do agree with that 100%. I just don't think, I think you have to be careful, just in my opinion, not, you can't throw this on every single neighborhood in Norfolk. Um, and you know, I, I don't want you guys to think that I don't appreciate this or Angela, I know she is the same way, that we don't appreciate that. We also want to give the opportunity for builders. There are junk houses. I'm telling you, I, I can see them. Um, I'm not gonna point out the one that I saw in, the, in this presentation. There's little stick, I call them stick houses, that you know, you can always tell because the front porch, the awning is usually held up by a pole, as opposed to what I look at as that classic coastal type thick block, you know, um, pedestal type. On there, so I mean, I, I see those all through Bayview. I've seen them, you know, through other parts of the city. I don't support that at all. Um, but we also, I, I, I want to be careful until we're at the point where we can um, really make this happen in in neighborhoods where you can come out with a with the coastal character design book and what expectations are. We're just not there yet, um, and I don't want to stop development because we're not there yet as a city. Um, we're going to eventually get there. I know we will, and I'm supportive of that. And this is great. This is awesome. And I think there's probably about 15 other neighborhoods in the city right now that we could probably do the same thing for and really get it going in different parts of the city. Dr. Wibley, and then Mr. Reddy. A couple of questions. But first, I just wanted to remark, and I understand what Tommy's saying. But I think there were some things today that Mel brought up that are pertinent to all of our neighborhoods. And those are some things that she talked about that are just architectural design. Not necessarily a pattern, not necessarily congruent with the neighborhood, but things like the pitch of the roof and if it um, accentuates the garage, that that's the hallmark of the house. The elevation of the house, the community connection that we want in all of our neighborhoods. I, I understand what you're saying when you have new homes that are, are maybe not in an old style, but to, to submit to just whatever because we're a new neighborhood just continues that pattern. And so insisting on architectural design, I think at any price point we can do, and it can be not necessarily by the pattern book that Hunter's built, which is of course terrific. So don't throw the, you know, if you don't start somewhere, you never get there. Because you just keep waiting and you just keep building more of these things. Real quickly, Lenny, um, what's the connection with builders here? I mean, do we have builders identified? Um, have we met with them or is that the next step? Um, yes and no. It is the next step, but we have been talking to builders all along on this. 
we are talking to TBA about this. Um, to Tommy's point, our new zoning ordinance is going to draft um, guidelines by character district. We are working on the coastal character district, Mr. Smeagle. We recognize the suburban character district of, of much is of what is much of the north and the eastern sort of part of our city. This was done specifically in a traditional neighborhood where we did have designs and, and things that we could work from and we had a character that we were trying to preserve. Um, so we are working with TBA. We are trying and to... And so we will insist upon builders that are going to produce what we want to build. Well, these designs are... This is the incentive. If you want to build in this neighborhood, the easiest way to build is to select one of these designs, pick up your permit, and go forth and build. If you choose to do something different... We're going to be very careful with the inspections because we ran into this, yeah. as you know, in, in Park Place when we had all yes. those builders come in with, under NRHA and then we had terrible quality. So. And Terry, just since you brought this up, the difference is, too, is that one thing that they're doing now with this coastal character district is they're going to every civic league and doing this presentation for them to get that understanding. And we don't have civic leagues now that have, you guys have an advantage because you sat on planning. So you dealt with this all the time. Um, and so you have an appreciation for it. But most, the average citizen doesn't understand the architectural, the, all this. They're not Mel Price. They, you know, well, nobody's Mel. So <laughs> Mel's awesome. So, you know, but now they're going out and they're explaining that. And once that gets out there more, it will uh, change. But instead, it is a community. And Kenny was at the Civic League when EDC went back. And they said they want the two-car garage. They're not upset about it. There was no conversation about architectural, you know, um, the architecture of that house. But now, I think as you go out there and they discuss this more, I think that they'll have an appreciation for that. Mr. Riddick? Yeah. Um, might have been uh, George and I asked, will these homes be built on slabs or will they be elevated? They will and be elevated across space. They will be elevated yeah. with a crawl space because I think uh, he was saying that, I believe it was George said that Huntersville is not a flood zone, but I just want to make sure that they are going to be elevated. They are. They, as, as you saw from the drawings that, were, that Mel presented, yeah, see the, all of them sit off the ground. Right. And that's a character trait in Huntersville as well as in Broad Creek, that there are crawl spaces, but the new construction that is coming in um, has a tendency to want to build on a slab. How much oversight will we have as a city? I mean, after they get the plan book, how much oversight will we have to make sure that they're following the guidelines? The inspection process will be on those plans. The permit will be issued to those plans only. So if you want to revise those, you're going to have to come and discuss that with us because it, it will not be covered by the permit you were issued. The, the, from the outside, though, what you're looking at is three or four steps off the ground. 
it is off the ground from the outside. You will not observe. You know, the word slab implies it's on the ground. A raised slab is where you've actually created the foundation, you backfilled it, and the floor is solid from there down. Um, but it won't be a crawl space up under there. It's, they, can, they can either do a crawl space or they can do a, a, a you know, a controlled filled um, slab, a raised slab as we refer to it. Lady, would that be an option? Um, is that an option, Mel? Either you have a raised slab or a crawl space. Is that an option for the homeowner when they're, when they're, when they're selecting their plans? It could be an option. Right now, we have it. Um, we met with three different builders and TDA, and they emphasized us that it is less expensive to build the elevated slab. Also, reduces a lot of potential problems, but it could be an option. Uh, we would just, just need because to it's, add the debt savings. Mm -hmm. Just because it's less expensive to them, we, we're talking about the homeowner, the person who's going to invest in it. So what advantages would the homeowner have? What's the best advantage for them? Um, so with a, with a traditional crawl space, a lot of times your mechanical ductwork and everything is under the house. Um, you then have to insulate it. You have erosions um, and termite inspections and everything that happens under the house. Right. When, you, when you elevate the slab, eliminate all of that as well as eliminating any sort of uh, radon or gases that build up underneath the house um, so it's a you approach the mechanical system differently but it's something that um, the construction designing construction industry is starting to move towards I guess my, my concern is more or less if sea level rise continues now Huntersville is not a flood zone but let's just suppose 15 years from now you know you, but either one of the approaches are off the ground. Yes. Trust me, they are completely off the ground. On the outside, you will see what looks like a foundation. It'll look the same way. Um, there are builders who are doing it now because, again, as she pointed out, it, it has a benefit of not allowing uh, termites. There's nothing down there for termites. And on the um, sea level ride, wouldn't the raised slab have less damage than our crawl space? It would certainly not need to even have flood vents if you're in a flood zone, which we're not. But if it's open, you have to have flood vents. If it's filled, you do not. There's no purpose in them. And it creates a, a bit more stability in that foundation. But we can provide a note to provide, um, allow them to build on an optional crawl space if you'd like that. That's an option. That's a very um, easy thing for us to do. The, the point at price point is also um, something that has to be considered. Whatever the price point is, is going to be, um, you know, when you talk about expense and everything, um, there is not as much of a uh, profit spread mm -hmm. as one might think when you're building houses. And so when you get into certain things um, with those kinds of options, they do become more costly, which then, if that price is not able to be passed on to the buyer mm -hmm. because the property won't appraise once it's built, mm -hmm. then that builder's stuck. And so that's something to also consider. But the raised slab is a much better option just because term, I mean, primarily for termites and flooding, but termites, they just don't like concrete. They like wood. And your slabs are you know, just like a feeding frenzy for, for termites. So it is a better option. All right, Mr. Manager. All right, uh, thank you, Mayor. Uh, uh, Lenny and uh, Mel, B, thank you so much. Um, uh, great conversation. I think what, um, what you all talk through, which is um, the same place we are, this is a tool, a 
but it's going to take a lot of tools to continue to bring Huntersville back, whether it's the, the infrastructure we were talking about. I think it's also going to take some real effort uh, from a marketing perspective. And um, I, I don't think we can assume that because we've got a very innovative process here, that folks are going to come, come running into development. Right. So it's got, we've got some hard work ahead of us. So with that said, we've got a couple of items for uh, closed session. Mr. Clerk. <coughs> We just have one, one real estate matter we discussed this morning. Yes, just that one. For the purpose of setting Clause 3 of the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, that is discussion of the disposition of publicly owned real property off Monticello Avenue. Ms. Graves? Ms. Graves? Aye. Aye. Mr. Aye. Smeagol? Aye. Mr. Thomas? Aye. Dr. Woodley? Aye. Mr. Alexander? Aye. 